Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Four Degrees to the Streets podcast. Happy Black History Month once again. Um, we're a few days in and I'm just feeling the love and the education and just truly the beauty of what it means to be Black um, and excited for this month and what's left to come. So this is our second Black History Month episode. Earlier this month, we released an interview with Kristen Jeffers, the Black urbanist on Black history and urban planning. And today we are going to be talking about what it means to hashtag support Black business. So Jasmine, how's your Black History Month going? How are you holding up? I'm doing just fine, trying to stay out the way of the coronavirus <laughs> um, and trying to stay out the way of the snow. It's it's really cold and I just, but I'm excited for this episode and everything we got going on. Right, right. I know everyone was like snow on the first day of Black History Month. It's not, <laughs> it's not adding up. <laughs> How you doing? How's DC going? Whenever you guys talk about the snow, I'm like, oh, where? We didn't really get that much, but we're <laughs> we're supposed to be getting some. So we'll see. Hopefully you can... Hopefully I can keep the peace and mind my black business inside. <laughs> Good to know. I'm excited for this episode because it's the first time that we have so many guests on the podcast. So far, we've only had one um, additional member join us. But today we have four new guests on the show and I'll be reading their bios um, shortly. But we are going to be talking about Black businesses this episode, and um, I'm going to go ahead and read those bios. And so the first guest that we have is Kira Hibbert. She's the owner and partner at 3BL Developers, a real estate agent at Caldwell Banker Preferred, um, with a progressive experience spanning project management, residential development, and urban economic development. Kira has a proven track record working collaboratively with municipal leaders and developers in all facets of urban economic development, from land use regulations and public-private partnerships to affordable housing, brownfield advocacy, community outreach, and federal financing. She's a strong advocate for sustainable development and strives to build more economically, socially, and environmentally sustainable neighborhoods for America's future. Prior to starting 3BL Developers, Kira was the manager of policy and strategic initiatives at Locus, responsible real estate developers and investors, a program of Smart Growth America. Here she managed nationwide technical assistance programs and capacity building process projects to aid municipal leaders to address community challenges, including downtown revitalization, transit-oriented development, and housing equity. Kira was born and raised in Kingston, Jamaica, and is currently calling Philadelphia home. She left her birth country to see the world, experience different cultures, and most importantly, pursue higher education in community planning and development. Kira holds a master's in city planning from the University of Pennsylvania and a bachelor's degree in economics from Stetson University. She's also a board member of the Delaware Valley Smart Growth Alliance. 
Bashira Ajaman, founder and owner of She Raps, is a Ghanaian-American Muslim educator born in Seattle, Washington. She recently graduated from Louisiana State University with a master's in education, specializing in curriculum and instruction. Since 2008, she's worked with Teach for America program as a corpus member striving for educational equity with um, black and brown students in rural districts of Southern Louisiana. She's currently a full-time fourth grade teacher. God bless your heart, Bashira. <laughs> um, and in December, 2017, Bashira was named Washington State University's first campus civic poet for her talent in spoken word and engagement and activism. In the next few years, she hopes to continue civically engaging in movements against social injustice, both here and in West Africa. Bashira officially lost, launched She Raps February 2020 as a small business rooted in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, as well as Accra, Ghana. She Raps specializes in body adornment, such as waist beads, African print head wraps, and body jewelry that promote healthy body image and body love. Bashira manages a team of waste bead makers in Ghana and her business she wraps also offers wholesale services for other aspiring entrepreneurs and small businesses. She wraps belief and motto is that every curve is worth celebration. And then our final um, business is two young men that I know very, very well. They represent Brown Mill Company. Brown Mill is a New Jersey-based clothing brand founded in 2009, influenced by the work ethic of founder and CEO Justice Pitt Goodson's grandparents. At the cross-current of bespoke tailoring and streetwear, Brown Mill handcrafts garments, including collared shirts, embroidered jackets, graphic t-shirts, single-cut pants, customized for every individual. Brown Mill is an innovative lifestyle brand of luxury clothing touted as a combination of bespoke tailoring and streetwear. All of Brown Mill's clothes are produced using recycled textile material, which comes from clothing waste, donations, imports, thrift stores, and driven by a strategy of urban upcycling. Pieces of salvage material are incorporated into every design, creating entirely new garments crafted to profession. The style is further motivated by ties to the community and the urban backdrop in which it began. Drawing heavily from the black and brown cultural experience in America, the clothing and accessories produced by this company range from hats and tops to outerwear and pants. Each customer receives a custom product, individual in its own right, just as Brown Mill stands as a unique clothing brand in an industry of imitators. By allowing their cultural backgrounds as Black Americans, in addition to familiar high-end brands like Vintage Ralph Lauren and Seville Road Tailoring to inform their clothing style, Brown Mill is able to bridge the gap between streetwear and high fashion. Sustainability is a pillar of Brown Mill's business and life practices. The company's mission is to reduce waste and inspire sustainable lifestyles. Brown Mill produces its clothing with the environment in mind, upcycling discarded textiles to create one-of-one -one pieces. Since inception, they have upcycled 1,000 pounds of clothing with their no waste model. Y'all are doing great things, all three, all four of y'all, actually. <laughs> so we're you. really happy to have you on the podcast. Yes, we're super excited. Thank you, Jasmine. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, and so in the order that Jasmine read the bios, we want to do introductions. So please tell us about your brand, how it started, and why it began. And we'll start with Kira, and then head to Bashira, and then Justice and Taha. Uh, thank you, Nima and Jasmine. I'm excited to be here and excited to 
share more about my business and what it means to be a Black-owned business. Um, just to start, uh, 3BL Developers, it is a um, real estate development company that my partner and I started to protect our interest as we uh, acquire, renovate, and manage residential properties here in Philadelphia. Um, and just to give some background, um, while I was working at a nonprofit in DC in 2018, I was in a long distance relationship with my boyfriend, um, now husband, um, who, I, who is from Philadelphia. Uh, and at the time we were dating, he purchased and uh, started renovating a quadplex um, that was pretty uh, beat up. It was run down in disrepair. Um, so this took up most of his time. Um, so most weekends I would travel from DC to Philadelphia and help with the rehabs. And, and, and that included, you know, getting dirty, doing hands-on demolition, cleaning up the job site, painting, shopping for materials. Um, and after about six months of traveling back and forth between DC and Philadelphia, um, I, I just knew I was like more passionate about investing in real estate full time. Um, so uh, I quit my job in DC moved to Philadelphia uh, to embark on this new, you know, exciting but challenging journey of real estate investing. Um, so currently, uh, through Bill Developers, we do short-term rentals, um, that's uh, like Airbnb, and we are in the process of the planning phase of our next uh, uh, multifamily project. Um, so as the company grows, we hope to become uh, conscientious investors and developers who, uh, as the name suggests, 3BL developers, which means like triple bottom line development. So we, we hope to focus not only on profit and uh, financial performance, but also um, the ecological and social impact um, our projects have on communities as well. Um, I also became a real estate agent. Um, so I'm with Coldwell Banker Preferred at the moment. Um, and, and that was mainly to learn more about the real estate industry, uh, how to represent myself in deals to save money. Um, I also started uh, an Instagram page, uh, Philly Realtor Finds, and that was really a way for me to educate myself um, about real estate um, and, and also inspire others to invest in real estate. Um, because I, I've come to believe that real estate really, you know, whether it's owning a home or purchasing an investment property, it is one of the safest, um, simplest ways uh, and steadiest ways to build wealth uh, and achieve financial freedom. Thank you. Hey, I'm the founder of uh, She Wraps, a small beauty business and um, a wholesale business as well. Um, I am a full-time fourth grade teacher, like you mentioned. So I am completely unashamed to say She Raps is my side hustle <laughs> and um, my side business. And I, I, because I love teaching and I love what I do. Um, and I'm just, you know, navigating um, these different parts of my world kind of merging together and coming together. Um, my mother was actually the first to open up a business in our family. Um, she sold uh, fabrics and she sold clothes and jewelry um, for the longest. And then when things got a little bit tough, she had to move uh, back into our home and people would come in and shop from our home. Um, and so I, I grew up watching her um, without knowing that she was one of the 
first entrepreneurs that I was uh, ever exposed to. Um, and so I'm blessed to continue on her legacy. Uh, she Raps was founded for the purpose of empowering women to embrace love on their different bodies, bodies and body types. Um, like you mentioned, we specialize in body adornment, mainly African waist beads, uh, which have been part of a generations long tradition of women adorning themselves for the purpose of beauty, accentuating fe um, femininity. Um, we are also so proud to ethically trade with African women throughout the diaspora who have been trading beads and, and fabrics uh, for centuries to support their families. We launched in February 2020 after I finally, uh, you know, decided that um, I was ready. It's always hard to take that big step, um, uh, but I finally grew the confidence to do so. Uh, um, over the course of 2029, I had uh, dealt with a very disheartening um, roommate situation when I first moved here to Louis to South Louisiana. And um, She Raps was really that vehicle for me of um, empowering myself through empowering others as well. Um, and so, yeah, I'm very uh, excited to be here. And let me know if you had any more questions that I didn't answer. No, thank you. That was perfect, Bashira. We're gonna go ahead and go to Justice and Taha. Thank you, uh, Jazz and Nemo, for the opportunity to uh, talk on you guys' platform. It's really good to be here. Um, I'm going to start off real quick, give you some, some background on myself. Um, yeah, my background is in entrepreneurship and uh, lifestyle fashion, I guess. Started off brown mill in late middle school, early high school, and really modeling it off after my grandparents and their work ethic and their story. Uh, a little bit of background on them. They come from the South. Uh, my grandfather, he uh, came from the South to Newark, New Jersey, you know, lived in the rough parts in the early days and really worked hard, actually two full-time jobs to bring them from there to the suburbs of Piscataway, uh, my stomping grounds. And my grandmother, she's just super creative and out there. So really taking a little bit of his work, that work ethic and her creativeness and mashing them together really was the inspiration behind the brand. And even the name, uh, Brown Mill, it comes from my grandfather, John Brown uh, and my grandmother's first name, Mildred. So paying homage to them and their legacy and all that they stand for is the foundation. Um, so with that, living in Piscataway, just loving to dress up as a kid and really just loving, you know, um, garments and fashion, you know, just being like, hey, you know, let's let's, let's make something of our, our own. So I started making bow ties and uh, Jasmine you can attest to that. You know, I made Jasmine Sweet 16 uh, bow ties for like, uh, I guess, not the groomsmen, but the, uh, I don't know what the word is, but yeah, made those bow ties. The and, people uh, in the, the court. I actually don't know the name, yeah. but the yeah, court. The it was like eight guys, it, yeah. and Taha was in that too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's when Taha and me met around sophomore year of high school, and I started working together to really build the brand and turn it, in, turn it into what it is today, which is really a full-fledged lifestyle brand. And uh, from then on out, just really uh, developing the skill sets and my business acumen through internships, uh, jobs, um, apprenticeships in the fashion industry and in the business field, and applying all those knowledges to um, our platform and our brand, Brown Mill. Uh, 
And uh, with uh, me, from my background, was um, more of uh, uh, based around art and design. Uh, when I grew up, my, my cousin was uh, heavy bit, heavy on uh, drawing, so I would always uh, go to his house. And every time I was over at his house, we'd uh, have these drawing contests of who could draw the best superhero. That's where I got my um, design from. And then from there, I kind of went over to um, where I was. Uh, I used to play uh, a lot of football uh, in the streets with my friends. So I, I would be over my uh, friend's uh, house, and he actually. Um, he would put us on and tell us how it's um it's uh better to create your own fashion versus to um go and buy someone else's so that's when he um took us to, to the home depot because we couldn't drive uh, at the time he took us to home depot and we, we bought um spray paint cans and we uh spray painted our own shirts and that's where um i kind of started uh my, my fashion journey from there and then, um when i uh, like Dustin said, when I, we got to high school, uh, that's when uh, I joined Brownlow and then uh, kind of up from there. Thank you all for sharing your stories and how your brand started. Um, I think that those are incredible stories, hearing how family was involved, how different partners that you chose were involved in helping you guys become where your brand is today. Before we jump into some of the other questions, after you guys sent your bios and I was reading them through, I noticed this theme of sustainability, um, whether it's sustainability in upcycling materials for clothing or a cure or sustainability in the built environment lens and in Bashira ethical trading patterns with women in West Africa. So I'd like to hear um, from whoever wants to jump in on this conversation, why sustainability is important for the work that you do and, and how you became aware and knowledgeable of its importance. So um, I guess the fashion aspect, um, when I started off making bow ties, I was unknowingly being sustainable because I was using like my grandmother's leftover fabrics or like cutting up old shirts to make just random things. So that was that from the beginning, just organically. Then throughout college, I started taking you know, environmental science courses and really started getting into it. Even my roommates, they had startups in the environmental science fields that dealt with sustainability. So really just hearing them talk about it and, and all that, I was like, how can I take what I'm doing? How can we take what we're doing? and apply the sustainability aspect um, to another level. So uh, we started sourcing um, specifically, you know, remnant fabrics. I used to work with Levi. So we, we brokered a deal with them where we get leftover denim fabrics from their jeans and started to make, you know, garments from those um, in order to not, you know, contribute to the ongoing, you know, overconsumption cycle that we have as a nation in the clothing industry because it's something that's um, getting worse and um, affects us daily and it's going to affect the next generation. So thinking about systems that we can implement uh, now and in the future to kind of make new things out of old things or make new things of, you know, in a sustainable way is something super important and, and vital for our survival as humans in a, in a uh, physical aspect, I think. Kara, do you want to talk about sustainability in, in real estate and what that means for 3BL? Yeah, so um, for me, my, my background is actually in uh, city planning. So I'm an, uh, I'm an urban planner, just like you and Nemo. Um, and uh, uh, my concentration was land use and environmental planning. 
So just being exposed to that, you know, I, I became more aware of, you know, the environment, um, climate change, um, and, and what it means to do uh, sustainable real estate development. Also, while I was working in D.C., I worked as a nonprofit with a coalition of real estate developers and investors that um, cared a lot about the environment and doing advocacy work for public policies at this um, local, state, and federal level um, to ensure that there is a sustainable um, real estate development. So, so I took a lot of that um, when I worked there that left a lasting impression on me. And it made me want to be that type of developer too, um, that type of investor here um, in Philadelphia or wherever I, you know, if I stay in Philly or wherever else I decide to invest in real estate. Um, I wanted to take that as a, as a component. I wanted to be more than just uh, focusing on profit, um, but also on um, the environment and, and people. Uh, so whether that's, you know, incorporating um, environmentally friendly uh, design techniques or materials. I mean, usually it is more expensive to do that, but um, I think my long-term goal as uh, our company uh, grows, um, we would like to uh, ensure that is the premise of our business. Thank you, Kira. Um, so before we get into some of the other questions and for everyone listening, we wanted to kind of set the context of what it means to be a black business in the United States. And so Jasmine and I pulled some data, um, some recent data um, from the US Census Bureau and the 2018 annual business survey to really show how my minority businesses are currently stacking up. And so currently 18.3% of all US businesses are owned by a minority group. 19.1% of all US businesses are owned by a female. And so that's of any race or ethnicity. There's only 5.8% of all businesses that are Hispanic owned, and this has been increasing in recent years. And then Asian owned businesses only account for 10% of all businesses. And 25% of that, you know, 10 for Asian businesses are in the food and accommodation services industry. Black owned businesses only account for 2.1% of all businesses. And a quarter of those are in healthcare and social services. And this is 2.1% compared to Blacks that make up 14.2% of the U.S. population. Less than 1% of businesses are owned by Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander. And then less than 1% of businesses are owned by American Indian or Alaska Natives. And we'll have links to this in the show notes. So for those listening, if you want to continue to do research on those as well. Another report that we looked at from the Brookings Institution was to expand the economy, invest in black businesses. And this report is really interactive and shows a lot of different maps and compares cities and black businesses as well. What I thought would be interesting for this conversation would kind of talk about it from the equity standpoint of black businesses. And so, as I mentioned, blacks make up 14.2% of the US population, but are only 2% of businesses. So if black businesses match population size, then Ideally, there would be over 800,000 more black businesses than currently exist. If the number of black businesses also match the population size and the revenue from those firms to non-black businesses revenue, then the total revenue of black businesses would increase by 5.9 trillion. So if blacks and populations matched the population for non-black businesses, then that would be the increase. So $5.9 trillion. 
And then finally, wow. black business. Right. Wow. Like just trying to like let all that sink in. <laughs> um, so black businesses create an average of 10 jobs per firm compared to 23 jobs per firm for non-black businesses. So if the average number of employees per black businesses was able to increase to 23, so to be at the same level of non-black businesses, then this would create approximately 1.6 million jobs. Um, and I think especially when we think about coming out of this COVID times, these are jobs that are being left on the table just due to historical inequities um, based on population and access and um, access to resources and education as well. So the question for all of you is, please tell us in your opinion what it means to black, be a black owned business. Why does that have significance, if at all? Um, and is part of your brand identity rooted in being a black owned business? And we'll go ahead and start with Justice and Taha and then go to Bashira and Kira. Um, I would say, yeah, first and foremost, our identity as a brand uh, is definitely rooted in our our pride and um, identification of being black and um, of the diaspora. Um, not only being a, a, a black business, but as black entrepreneurs, um, understanding that, you know, we have to work way harder, just any field as a, as a black worker or in any career, you, have, you know, we have to work harder than our counterparts in order to uh, receive the same recognition or equal recognition or equal anything. Um, as far as you know, finding funding, uh, finding investment, business loans, it, everything is harder. You have to be in your P's and Q's. So that's something I'm always, you know, um, headstrong about and working on as um, we just have to do more and think bigger and be more um, as a Black-owned business and um, continue to strive. Yeah, I think part of that is, um, you know, being able to use our platform to also um, you know, inform and educate uh, throughout the year, not just through um, Black History Month, what they uh, usually expect. Yeah, and I um, I definitely believe that this question has um, kind of also kind of parallels to uh, the first question that you asked about sustainability. Um, I think aside from the life circumstances that eventually reveal to you why uh, it's important um, to build ways of being sustainable in your life. Um, as y'all know, like, you know, teachers are already underpaid. And so finding a way to ensure that I could uh, set myself up um, to afford the lifestyle that I wanted was really uh, important to me. But in the process of that, how I could also invite others to use their different talents and their different um, sets of knowledge uh, to sustain themselves and then sustain their families and by extension of uh, their communities. And so when Justice talks about the different loopholes that Black businesses have to jump through in order to like simply exist, much less, you know, be able to maintain um, strong um, track records and uh, sustain themselves for a long time. So meaning that my business um, has to be rooted in a, a bigger, grander movement for financial, financial literacy, financial freedom, and upward social mobility for the communities uh, that we not only cater to, um, but the communities that work with us. And that's, um, yeah, that's what I would um, kind of root myself in, uh, in terms of what does being a Black business mean to us. Uh, I'm, I'm just taking in that uh, statistic that you uh, read. Um, you said Black ownership is 2.1% uh, 
of all businesses, that, that's just insane. <laughs> um, but personally for me, I think, you know, being a, a black business owner, um, it kind of shows the world that we are capable and able to build, create and find success um, despite, you know, the negative perceptions and the reality that black people aren't afforded the same opportunities as other races. Um, especially when it comes to uh, economic success and career opportunities. Um, but I do, I, I think, um, you know, it, it is unfortunate that um, uh, just like kind of what um, Justice had mentioned, like the, the struggles that um, Black owners uh, go through, you know, especially like with applying for funding. Um, it, it, it's really, um, it, it, it's 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 just so crazy to me, like how uh, black owners have to get so creative uh, in finding ways to stay afloat. Um, especially when you, we look at our counterparts, it's just not the same. Um, so yeah, I agree with everyone, and I think um, if we are able to build, you know, our fellow black owners ourselves and others, you know, it would really uh, help to you know drive wealth for black uh, families. Um, and improve just the overall financial well-being, um, uh, building the status of Blacks and uh, help to uh, contribute to thriving Black communities. Um, kind of circling back, um, I'm also really happy to see kind of this spark of, um, sorry, a spark of um, awareness in our global reach, um, even with, you know, everything that's going on right now in West Africa, and how there are many programs for, you know, cross uh, things to happen, you know, in Ghana and Nigeria, they have many programs for black businesses to thrive there, as well as in the Caribbean. So I think we're becoming more and more aware of our global uh, partners in the diaspora and how we can all work together to create um, an understanding and a resource uh, database for each other to help us, um, you know, create opportunity and, and thrive and grow. Because I think sometimes we might put ourselves in a box when just thinking about that 2% number and all we only what we can do here in America, but if we were to think about the color of our skin and the opportunity we have globally um, within our global community as black people, we, we would go much faster, so. And just to piggyback off of that, I think um, uh, Justice brings up a great point about this global movement that we are in. I think oftentimes um, when social movements arise or um, when they are sparked by an event, um, people tend to regard um, the push for Black businesses as a trend. Um, whereas we as black business owners, right, we are rooted in this idea of building our diaspora, of uh, supporting fellow businesses. Um, well, ho hopefully, you know what I mean? Hopefully all uh, black business owners are, are rooted in that. Uh, I personally feel a greater sense of responsibility to uphold um, the support black business uh, movement, not just 
um, in this moment that we are arising and growing in social consciousness, um, but always, and it goes back to the idea of sustainability. How can we, as a global diaspora, uh, right, really tap into that mindset of sustaining one another uh, through growing our financial literacy and through growing our financial freedoms and really building our networks with one another? Um, I, I believe that uh, since we live in a world where money talks, um, it's important that we, you know, we start talking back. <laughs> <laughs> thank you y'all are on it today like y'all just take the pocket y'all just you know y'all run it with the with the bomb with the wisdom bomb so um here for all of it um I think a theme through that was thinking about a lot of the challenges and additional challenges there's challenges of being a business owner and then there's challenges of being a black business owner and so I'm just curious and this is for anyone who wants to answer um what were some of the challenges you faced in either starting or maintaining your business and for those listening and maybe interested in starting a business or have their own, what would be some of the advice that you would give them to overcome those challenges? Okay, <laughs> I can um, touch on that a little bit. I, I did mention earlier during my introduction that one of my um, biggest loopholes, or sorry, one of my biggest hurdles rather, um, was myself. I, I just never, uh, for so long, I was like, I don't know enough. I'm not ready. I uh, My packaging's not cute enough. Um, I don't have enough uh, people in my network. I don't have enough other businesses in my network. And it's like, girl, when you gonna be ready? When you gonna be ready, you know? you are not going to wake up tomorrow and have um, Bill Gates networks. No, like all of it is going to come with time. You're going to uh, climb uh, a ladder and you're going to skate over some learning curves. And so I had to work myself up to that, that confidence to really get started um, and know that there were going to be challenges along the way. Uh, but baby, that's not for the week. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you gotta. Um, so I, I had to, I had to give myself a whole bunch of pep talks. Like, okay, if you want to do this, you need to grow some tough skin. Um, and that the first part of that was just, you know, you know, building that confidence and saying, you know, you are, you are never going to be perfectly ready. So that means you're ready <laughs> right now. You're ready right now. So try it right now. Um, start right now. So yeah. I just want to add on to that, that I've known Bashir for probably 20 years now, which is crazy to say we're getting old and gives us her flowers because I've been able to see um, her and her business grow over the last few years. So you're doing it. Thank you, girl. Thank you. Yeah, I was, I was going to add on and, you know, like agree with you, Bashir, um, that that is a, a big, you know, struggle. Um, it, it is us getting in our own way. Um, and you know, not believing in ourselves and, um, you know, just starting, you know, even if you fail, if you start, um, you know, that's the start and you can like always push through it. Um, so sometimes I think, yeah, just, just starting is like a big, um, obstacle that, uh, we have to overcome also like, uh, in line with real estate. Um, I am a real estate agent and, um, what I find is that a lot of people aren't educated, um, in, knowing what's possible. So like home ownership, I, I feel like a lot of uh, uh, black people don't necessarily um, think home ownership is something that they can achieve. Uh, home ownership is like one of the number one ways to build wealth. Um, there's equity that you can get from your home. Um, th there's cash flow if you're investing. Um, and, and, and people just don't know um, and, you know, think that they're unable to uh, achieve these things. So I think, um, a challenge is uh, educating people 
about what is possible. Um, you know, like someone who has, um, uh, what's the word? <clears throat> um, uh, someone who doesn't have the uh, flashiest job thing, you know, I, I come across that, that they, they don't think that home ownership is something that they can achieve, but, but in reality it is. If you have a steady job and, you know, you, um, even if you're paying rent monthly and you're consistent, yeah, home ownership is definitely something that um, you can work towards. So I think, yeah, I, just to wrap that up, uh, a big challenge um, I'm facing is is getting people educated um, about what is possible. Like you can do it. Um, you just, you know, with the right resources, um, with someone uh, to guide you, um, it, it is possible. But Justice and Bashira brought up this conversation of the global um, market for Black-owned businesses like, that are based in America and, and the movement right now of our global importance. And so I want to talk about this report from Yelp and how the pandemic and how the unfortunate circumstances that happen to Black men and Black women in terms of police brutality and police um, murders over the summer kind of focused a lot of attention across Americans and people all over the world really on how they can be invested in the cause and, and in the plight of Black people in America. And one of the ways that kind of grew out of that was how can they support more Black businesses? And so, um, Yelp, which is the largest kind of search engine for finding local businesses, they published a report in June of 2020 that um, wanted to look at the changes in their database for searches of anything starting with the phrase Black-owned. So whether that was Black-owned bookstore, Black-owned salon, Black-owned coffee shop, Black-owned boutique. And they found that from May 25th, to July 1st, 2020, so basically a month, that the um, number of searches for Black-owned businesses increased over 7,000%. They increased from around 35,000 to 2.5 million just in that month um, as compared to that same time period in 2019. And so it's unfortunate that people had to die or people had to protest for there kind of to be this surge of interest in spending money with um, Black-owned businesses. But how has your brand um, been impacted, if at all, on this kind of increased interest in spending their people, spending their money with Black-owned businesses? And that, honestly, might also just come from more Black people because I'll say, you know, firsthand that it's super easy to go to Target to buy a waist bead, Bashira. And it's super easy to go to some other big brand store to buy a hoodie at Justice and um, Taha. Super easy to just go anywhere and find a real estate investor or a, a realtor. And so Black people, I think, have to have a better job of seeking out Black-owned businesses to spend their money with? Because if we don't do it ourselves, how can we even expect or anticipate that other people will do the same? So the question that I want to pose is, how has your business, if at all, been impacted um, by this kind of surge? And how do you think that you guys can sustain that interest over a time so it's not just a movement thing or a period thing? And whoever wants to jump in can answer the question. 
Um, kind of touch on what you just said. Uh, it's a really good point. Like, like you said, it's really easy and accessible and convenient for people to do the thing that's you know near them geographically or what they know as you know their brand that their father and grandfather wear. But it has to be a a intentional thing to go out of the way to support black businesses a lot of the time. And unfortunately, that that's what it is. Uh, but I think with a little bit of education um, and good branding, I think that we can kind of turn the stride and really get people to make this a lifestyle because our our business increased a lot, um, fortunately, fortunately and unfortunately after the whole social justice thing happened in early, you know, March and stuff. But it's like, how can we make this a sustained thing, you know, sustaining one another, like you said, Monsieur, um, all year round, all lifestyle round globally. Um, I just think it just comes from keep on keeping on um, and us doing our part to provide good experience in black businesses. Cause you know, a lot of times I think one thing black businesses get a knack for is like bad customer service or like, you know, not doing what we can as a business to provide the best experience possible to have that retention for the, for the customers. So as long as I, we're doing our part and provide the best product, best experience and excellence for what we do, um, nothing but time and education will help make that a lifestyle. But I mean, I have to say, like, it really has been increasing and is on the up and up. So I think it's going to be a time factor and being on the P's and Q's factor. Um, but I will say, yeah, we have benefited a lot from the past few months, people being intentional with supporting Black business. Um, but yeah, we just have to keep keep it up. Yeah, I definitely agree that um, a lot of it is um, going to going to take change on multiple levels, personal, um, you know, choices, and then a collective conscious choice, systemic changes to make access to Black businesses um, even greater and uh, just you know more accessible for people. Um, like you said, uh, you can't. By the way, I didn't. I didn't know Target was selling. A waste beads. I hope you just use that as an example. Now I'm gonna have to I just use it as an example. I don't really know if Target is selling waste beads. Oh, okay. Target got anything <laughs> um, else. Like so. I said, if you if you walk into Target and um, you know purposefully looking for some waste beads, and something in your spirit doesn't tell you, <laughs> doesn't tell you um, that you know you you might seek you know means to buy these beads from women who have you know, sat out in the sun to trade beads for their, for their living, sat out for generations trying to support their family members, um, places that, you know, traditional waste beads actually come from or places that, you know, ethically and, and locally sourced uh, goods come from, um, then don't consider yourself invested in the collective movement uh, for upward social mobility for Black people. I think that even though we all cannot be perfect, um, being that, you know, we're all on our iPhones, we are, you know, using different um, materials from different businesses inevitably uh, to, to, to kind of merge into the world and continue to um, to participate in different things in the world, we still have a responsibility to be as conscious as possible. And that could mean um, different things for different people. Um, maybe it's that you are changing where you are uh, eating and deciding to support local black owned restaurants. Um, maybe it is when you shop online, you shop and you find out whether that product that you need 
is being sold by a black business first. Um, and some of it is uh, also, like I mentioned, systemic. What power do you have in the areas that you work at, uh, whether it's in urban development, whether it's political, whether it's educational, what powers do you have or what leeways do you have? Um, what platforms, platforms do you have that could aid in um, collectively building and sustaining our businesses so that we can sustain our communities. I think a lot of people also think of it as like, well, it's just my homegirl. I'm just supporting my homegirl. Like, no, when we all make the collective conscious decision to support Black businesses at, at most the most facets of, you know, our lives, that means the money is circulating in our communities. That means it's going back into our pockets over and over again. And it's um, ameliorating uh, where we are in our social st statuses, in our financial statuses and et cetera. Just to also one more point with that, like I, I like what you had mentioned um, this year with access to the black businesses being super important. And I think black people at certain positions also play a big role into providing that access to opportunity for other people. You know, for instance, Beyonce did a great job of it, you know, early on with her uh, Black Parade website, where it's basically a, a directory of all, like hundreds of, maybe not thousands of Black businesses. I've heard areas. about that. It's amazing. It was dope. Um, so it's like little stuff, not little stuff, it's a big thing. Stuff like that really matters and really plays a big role. Like my, my girlfriend, she bought, you know, these wine glasses from the website and I bought some stuff. So um that's super important to have year-round and updated and you know not just her but other people too and other things we can create um i think clubhouse played a big role in that this year as we saw um with providing access to networks resources understanding and so it, it's going on it just has to continue and get better and better i think in terms of um things that can be done and people's in positions i think that um, minority and women-owned business program that a lot of cities have in their procurement office is a really um, vital tool. Because if you think about the amount of services that even a small town like Piscataway contracts out, they might contract out their trash service, they might contract out their snow removal and different things like that. If they have a minority women-owned business program in their procurement, that means that a certain percentage of their procurement dollars have to go to a minority women-owned business. That provides a lot of opportunity for all minority-owned businesses who are doing snow removal or trash removal or any kind of those services to get consistent funding from an entity that's not going anywhere. Like they're going to be here. They're always going to need snow removal services. And so I know that the first one of those programs started in Atlanta with a black owned mayor and him looking at their procurement dollars and saying like, you know, there's a way that we can spend this money wiser and, and get it out into the hands of a diverse array of businesses. And so I think that the directories that grew up over the summer, I mean, even Instagram using their platform where you can like filter for black owned businesses, I think all of that will draw attention. It just, I hope that instead of this movement kind of lending I'm going to just repeat it again because it's something that really boils me. It really requires Black people to to seek out those services themselves because if we don't do it, nobody else will. And there's we can't be upset if they don't because we're not doing it ourselves. There's like a statistic going around that shows the number of days or hours or weeks that 
a dollar earned by a person in each ethnicity circulates within that community. And I don't remember the number, but I do know that for Black people it's significantly less than any other ethnic group. And that's disheartening because it means that when we earn money, we're not even spending it within our, our community. And that it's never that circulation of wealth that Bashira and Justice were, were talking about. Jasmine, I think you mentioned a really good point about the classification of businesses as disadvantaged or minority or woman-owned. Um, and I think some cities also call it like a certified business enterprise program. Um, but there is also, again, I think we talked about earlier that education piece for um, Black people in general and then also Black businesses to then file for that status so they can be included um, in citywide contracts or uh, state-level contracts that have that obligation to meet. Um, and so I think now, you know, when we're thinking about how can we spread, how can we do more sustainable things to bring businesses forward um, after this movement that started in the, in the year of 2020, which was such a, whew, just everything that went on. Um, one of which we've mentioned on this call as well, being the coronavirus pandemic. And, uh, you know, we've seen data from the National Bureau of Economic Research that shows just how hard businesses were hit. And it's just become clear whether we're watching it on the news, whether we're seeing it on the street. Jasmine and I were just talking earlier. She was saying one of her favorite restaurants in DC. And I was like, I think they might be closed, <laughs> you know? And so we've seen that the restaurant industry has been hit in-person retail has been hit, um, leisure and hospitality industries. And as of April, there was a 50% drop um, in these job postings. And so that's just one of the ways to show that jobs are, jobs are being cut, things that once existed are not there anymore. And so we wanna hear from you all, how has the pandemic impacted your business? How have you been able to keep your business profitable during this time? Um, and she wraps Shira and Taha and Justin of Brown Mill. You all are in the retail industry, and, but then also have an online platform. And so how have you been impacted in that way? So I think um, it, it was kind of a little bit of both. It would kind of hurt us and help us at the same time. So I, I see well, versus our um, our online, right? We're getting prepared on uh, in 2020 to try to um, scale up uh, online. So uh, versus our, our pop-ups where we had a majority of our sales. Um, so we noticed after the pandemic hit, um, we couldn't, it, you know, kind of hindered us. It, we couldn't even um, have pop-up shops in the beginning. So we weren't generating any sales uh, in person, but um, through the pandemic, everybody was at home. So everybody was online shopping more. So it did, we did see an increase in sales um, when people were uh, indoors more. Yeah, and also to that measure too, um, because people are at home more shopping through e-commerce, we had to increase our content um, on our social media, our content on our website, just so people can see that we're active, we're moving, and all that leads to the website, which can, you know, converts to dollars. So it had to be a kind of a shift, but in the end, it was a little bit more, it's, be it's better for us because it's more profitable because it required us to be a lot leaner. We didn't have to go out and do a pop-up shop that required us to rent the space. And, you know, all these extra things that cost money. We just had, you know, the website, we can come and, you know, spend a dollar. So it turned out to be pretty good for us and really showed us the power of e-commerce and the power of content. So um, it was a blessing in disguise uh, in that sense. And Kira, how has the pandemic affected uh, the real estate side of things? Yeah, so uh, yeah, the COVID-19 crisis uh, really did impact um, 
the uh, real estate market. Um, for like agents, um, one of the biggest things was with the uh, stay at home orders. Um, you know, they weren't able to go out and uh, uh, show homes, you know, work with buyers. Um, sellers weren't, aren't, home sellers weren't willing to list their properties um, to uh, allow people to come in to view them, to buy them. Um, so it kind of really disrupted the uh, market when it just hit. Um, uh, there was a housing shortage. Um, so uh, that really drove up the price of houses. So buying a house, um, uh, I'd almost say made it unattainable for some, uh, some for, for people who were considering purchasing a house. Um, you know, now it's like, wait, the, the price like increased by 25%. Um, <laughs> how am I going to afford a house? With, with my salary. It's not like salaries were increasing with uh, COVID. So there was lots of inflation uh, in the market. Um, I'm also an, Air I also do Airbnb. So I work in the service industry and one of the, uh, uh, we were really impacted when when co when the government like shut down the city and everything. Um, uh, a lot, we got a lot of cancellations. So that really just, um, uh, it shook our world because we're like, wait, um, how are we going to pay our mortgage and our bills, you know, with, with um, all these cancellations and there was no, um, uh, we just didn't know, you know, where, how are we going to start making money again? What, what are we going to do? So um, it really shook up the world, um, the real estate industry. Also um, they, uh, because a lot of people were, uh, forced to limit their work, um, losing their job, um, you weren't able to pay your rent. So um, uh, they had the, the moratorium, um, which um, allowed renters to stay in their homes and then landlords, you know, <laughs> they're not receiving rent and a lot of landlords have mortgages that, you know, they're unable to pay. So, um, you know, like while you identify with a, a renter and then it's like, you know, I'm also a landlord too. So I understand um, that that struggle, um, you know, like uh, dealing with all these uh, changes. So it, it's been a very, um, uh, I, I, right now, I think the market is slowly bouncing back. Um, some would say uh, real estate really took off um, uh, during the pandemic. Um, others will say uh, that's not true. Um, so I think it really has been like a, a mix for some. It just depends on what side of the uh, uh, table you're sitting on. Um, but, um, yeah, that's, that's really just a, a general overview of, of how the real estate market has been, um, right now, uh, currently today, there is a, a shortage of housing houses on the market, um, but there, and there are a lot of buyers, um, because interest rates are at an all time low. Um, so more, there are more buyers, uh, less houses. Um, so it's just, a very competitive market right now. Um, there's a lot of bidding wars going on and um, people are just trying to come through and buy a house. So it, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting time. Um, and yeah, we're just, you know, hoping 2021 um, uh, things kind of smooth out uh, as, as the year goes on. I just wanted to plug really quick because thanks for explaining that so eloquently, Kira. Um, but for folks listening, we'll have Kira's Instagram page that she mentioned, Philly Realtor Finds, um, 
I just love going on there. It's just like, <laughs> the page is super cute. Like everything is just designed so well and super informative. Um, and I've been able to learn from posts. And so um, we'll share that so you all can continue tapping into Kira's real estate knowledge. So that pretty much wraps up everything we wanted to talk about with you all today. What we like to do at the end of the episode is go around and have everyone say something that they feel is a takeaway from today's conversation. It can be really anything. Um, and so Nemo and I will go first and then we'll go to Bashira Justice, Taha, and then Kira will close us out and then Nemo will give us some final words on where you can find the episode and things like that. So for me, I think the takeaway um, is that the businesses are out there and it's on the, it's like a, a balance between providing the access as a supplier of a product, um, but also because there's so few businesses, Black-owned businesses, it does require the consumer to do some research on their own. And so utilizing search engines, utilizing directories, if you're in a position where you can expel government funding, utilizing your programs to do so is very important. And so that's my takeaway for the episode. And I'm really glad that you guys could all join us. I would say my takeaway, and this is something that came up in the beginning when everyone was sharing the background of their businesses, but the importance of family in, in business or, you know, the start of a business, the importance of love being rooted in those businesses as well. Um, as Kira mentioned, her partner, her partner, how they started. Um, and it just reminds me of my own family and my parents um, throughout the years. I've seen them do business, their own business as a full-time. I've seen them do their own business as a side hustle. And I'm just super grateful to have them in my life for those examples. And um, I think it just, and then I think the community aspect of that love and family that you all have spoken to um, has really made my day. And so I'm grateful. I think uh, my takeaway would be, um, don't let this become just a trend uh, to support black owned or minority owned businesses. Um, realize that the real change happens when we hit them in their pockets. So let's continue to, um, uh, empower each other through our pockets and uh, hopefully that can uh, make a real difference and we become the change versus looking for change. Um, something I, a good takeaway I, I got from you, Josh, was understanding the importance of the resources, um, specifically looking into the procurement dollars aspect. I'm definitely going to see what Newark and Pescado have to offer because we have sewing machines. If there's a way we can do some uniforms for Pescado Middle School, whatever, you know, that's the opportunity there that they're, like you said, have to uh, allocate for minority businesses. So, um. Um, my takeaway is um, that it begins with us um, and that we are powerful enough within our own rights, but we're um, even more powerful when we work as a collective. And when uh, one of our core val the core values of um, of all for all of us it becomes community. Uh, there's just so much more uh, that we can attain, and um, I think the other thing I wanted to do is just pay homage to those the black owned businesses that came before us, the woman owned businesses that came before us who had to jump through even harder loopholes and um, had to get through even more difficult, more challenging hurdles. You know, you know, at least we have social media. 
<laughs> um, and um, yeah, just paying homage to those. And I'm proud to be from that that lineage of of women and uh, and Black resistance. And uh, we have so much to offer the world, and we've given so much to the world. And when you support other Black owned businesses or Black owned initiatives. Um, don't think about it as just um, a one-on-one -on -one support. Think about it as going far. Think about it as throwing a stone in a river and the ripples um, really reaching places that you cannot see. Um, yeah, that's all. <laughs> uh, my, my key takeaway is that, you know, we really have to make a, a conscious effort to support our fellow Black-owned businesses. Um, if we don't do it, um, no one else will. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it, 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 it's a good opportunity to educate and empower uh, uh, Black entrepreneurs um, and just help each other to, to build wealth. Um, the more we share, the more we support, um, the more we keep talking, uh, advertising, um, giving, you know, solid advice, um, yeah, we can we can help to grow our community and 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 you know create thriving Black communities. Thank you, Kira, and thank you, everyone. You know, Shira, Taha, Justice, Kira, you guys are all now officially part of the Four Degrees family, um, and we're so grateful to have you here and for your time. They're showing they're showing excitement and enthusiasm. <laughs> On the, on, the, on the call um, and for everyone listening, we hope you've enjoyed our Black History Month episodes. Um, please continue to you know, engage with us. If you liked it, tell us, you know, tell us your thoughts. Um, feel free to continue sharing things that you wanna see or hear from us um, as we're just starting out in our first season. Um, and you can listen to Four Degrees on a variety of platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, um, and wherever you really get your podcasts, we're available. We drop episodes every other Tuesday, and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the number four degrees pod. Peace out, y'all.